We turn to God's Word to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, let's read the entire chapter. The text consists of verses 30 and 31. We pick up with Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey as he is in Macedonia. Acts chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, And gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus 
and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and of earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. The text tonight consists of verses 30 and 31, the conclusion of Paul's sermon here at Mars Hill, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is a doctrine of great importance and significance. The doctrine of the resurrection teaches that our Savior is victorious over death and the grave. The doctrine of the resurrection is the proof that what Jesus set out to accomplish on the cross that he did in fact accomplish and that all our sins are covered and washed away by his shed blood. The doctrine of the resurrection also comforts us with regard to our own physical bodies because we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and there comes the day when this my body will be laid in the grave but Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that's a pledge of my final resurrection and so also then my mortal body will be raised from the dead to be made like unto the beautiful body of my Lord and my Savior. That, that's the doctrine of the resurrection and the comfort for us. But now there's more because the resurrection of Jesus gives you and me great hope for the end of all things. Not only with regard to the state of my body, but now as regards to the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of time on the clouds of glory, so that there are many reasons why Christ arose from the dead, and now this too is one of them, that he might come to judge the living and the dead. The text, Acts 17, 30 and 31, it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the very same breath as it speaks of the final judgment. And that means that if you believe in the resurrection, then you must believe in Jesus' second coming. And if you deny the resurrection, then you deny the coming of Jesus Christ for judgment. But now with a view to that day, in which Jesus Christ will come again and when he will sit as judge of all men, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. The command to repent is not unique to this text in verse 30 and 31, but it's found in, in so many other places of Scripture all over the Bible, the Old Testament prophets, called the people to repentance time and time again. John the Baptist, what was his ministry but repent of your sins? The apostles called the people to repentance. Peter, in his Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And now here in the text, the apostle Paul is speaking to the pagan Gentiles in that wicked, idolatrous city of Athens. And Paul declares unto them that God commands them also to repent. And this command to repent is far-reaching. God commands all men everywhere to repent. There was a time 
according to the text, when, when God winked at the ignorance of the Gentiles. But that time is over. And God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so I call your attention to the text. We take as our theme the risen Christ as judge. And let's note in the first place the command to repent. Secondly, Jesus Christ is coming to judge. And finally, the absolute certainty of Jesus coming to judge. The risen Christ as judge judge. Verse 30, but now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Command in the Old Testament, a command in the New Testament. This isn't an option. It's not up to you whether you want to repent of your sins or not. This is a command from God himself to repent of your sins. And this goes hand in hand with what we learned this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism, especially in the divisions of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the first thing that we as Christians must know to enjoy our comfort in life, but this, to know my sins and miseries? And not simply to know them in an academic way and to be able to write them down, but to know them so that we hate them, so that we flee from them, so that we don't commit them anymore, so that we turn our backs to those sins, and that we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and see him and love him and cling to him alone to repent. The text makes clear that this is a universal command. And the text makes that clear in two ways. In the first place, it says the command to repent comes to all men. To all men. And here, the word all refers to all different classes, to all different categories of men. There is no class or category of men to whom the call to repentance does not come. It comes to Jews and to the Gentiles. It comes to those who are rich, to those who are poor. It comes to masters. It comes to servants. It comes to men and women, to adults and children. Whatever is your educational status, your economic status, gender, race, age, None of that can be used in excuse to say, well, the call to repent comes to so many others, but I, I don't think it comes to me. No, the text says the command comes to all men. And then to make that crystal clear, the call comes to all men everywhere, to Gentiles in every geographic region of the world. To the Gentiles here in Athens, to whom the Apostle Paul is preaching. To the Gentiles in Rome, in Asia Minor, in Macedonia. To the Gentiles in all of Asia, in all of Europe, and now here in the Americas. There is no continent, there is no country, no island of the sea to which the command of God, repent, 
does not come. The command is universal. Now, it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. There was a time when it was more specifically directed just to the Jews in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God sent his word through the prophets to the Israelites, and the word of God and the call of the gospel was largely confined to the Old Testament nation of Israel. Now we know that there were exceptions in the Old Testament. There were exceptions that pointed to the day when the Gentiles in the New Testament would be gathered into the church by a true and living faith. So that even in the Old Testament, you think of the prophet Jonah, and he was sent to that wicked city of Nineveh, and a whole multitude of Gentiles repented at the call and command of God. But as a general rule in the Old Testament, the call to repentance came to the nation of Israel. And now it's in contrast to that that the apostle says that now in the New Testament, the command to repent is universal. And it goes to all men everywhere. Well, then the question that we have to ask is, what was then God's view of the Gentiles in the Old Testament? What was God's view of the Old Testament Gentiles before that direct call to repentance? How did God view the Gentiles? And the text answers that question when in verse 30, it speaks of the times of this ignorance God winked at. Times of this ignorance, God winked at. Now we say, what does that mean? On the first place, when the text says that the Gentiles in the Old Testament were ignorant, that does not mean that they were ignorant of the existence of God, that they were ignorant of God himself, because the Apostle Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 1, that all creation itself is a sufficient and manifold testimony to all men everywhere that there is one God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And not only that there is this one God, but that this God is powerful and this God is, uh, must be served and that you cannot help but see the power and majesty of God, even as you contemplate the things of this creation. And, uh, but in spite of the ignorance of the Gentiles, then the, the Gentiles did know something of the power and the majesty of God. In the second place, in the Old Testament, God never condoned or even ignored the ignorance of the Gentiles. That's the idea nowadays when you look at that figurative expression that the text uses, wink, winking at. Nowadays it means 
that somebody commits a sin and then we might wink at that sin, which means that we, we turn away from that sin and we say with a slight smile on our face, well, boys will be boys. Well, what can you do? Well, that, that's just the way that he is. That, that's just the way that she is. Um, and when there's sin involved, and we wink at that sin, and we treat it as something that's very minor, something that is no big deal, something that we just shrug off, we, we wink at it. But that, that's not the idea here. Not at all that God winks at the ignorance of the Gentiles and just in some way, shape, or form ignores it. And we mustn't either suppose that when God winked at their ignorance that God didn't punish the Gentiles in the Old Testament because there is that thinking out there that goes along those lines that maintains that all of the Gentiles, the pagan people in the Old Testament that before the time of Christ that, that they were saved. There is that thinking out, out there in the world. And the thinking is, but those Old Testament Gentiles, they didn't know any better. They didn't know any better. And therefore, God would be unjust to punish them for something that they're altogether ignorant of. Yes, in the New Testament, the Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ. But in the Old Testament, since they didn't have the gospel, God will be merciful to them and God will wink at the times of their ignorance and have favor upon them. That kind of thinking is dead wrong. The truth of the matter is that God positively hated and despised the sin of the Old Testament Gentiles. Now it's true that there, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for Bethsaida and Chorazin because Bethsaida and Chorazin, they saw the mighty works of God uh, which Jesus has done. But nonetheless, the judgment still falls upon Tyre and Sidon and God is very displeased with sin, whether that sin is found in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And God always punishes sin. So what does that mean then when God winked at their ignorance? It means that in the Old Testament, God winked at their ignorance by withholding the preaching of the gospel to the nations. And insofar as the gospel was withheld from the nations, they did not physically hear the call to repent. Now, why was it that way in the Old Testament? Why didn't God send the preaching to all of the nations in the Old Testament so that all of the nations would have heard that call to repent? Well, because it was the purpose of God to glorify his name in the gathering of his church in the Old Testament through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from the Israelites. That was God's church 
in the Old Testament. That was God's family in the Old Testament. God didn't have family outside of the kingdom of Israel and later outside the nation of Judah. The Jews were his children and the preaching of the gospel came to them, calling them to repentance and to faith in the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, God did have a few of his people found among the nations in the Old Testament. And there are instances of Old Testament conversions. We know many of them. But God didn't send the preaching of the gospel at large to the nations because they weren't his people. He withheld the gospel. And in so doing, God winked at the ignorance of the Gentiles in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is over. And we're in the New Testament. And this time of the winking of the Gentiles' ignorance is over. And how is it over? Because as verse 30 states, because now the word is published and God commandeth all men to repent. Because now it pleases God to gather his children, not simply from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to gather his, the spiritual seed of Abraham who have the faith of Abraham the, the, from among the Gentiles of the nations. And in the New Testament, God has his elect in every nation, tribe, and tongue, and his church is going to be gathered from the, from the four corners of the earth. And that means that the gospel must go forth and call men to repentance. For the Apostle Paul, that means that he must preach the gospel in that wicked city of Athens. And the sin of the Athenians, and mind you, the sin that we are guilty of, the ignorance of the Athenians is all of their graven idol worship. That was the ignorance of the Gentiles in the Old Testament, worshiping things made of wood and stone and what have you, giving oneself over to the sin of idolatry and then turning the glory of God into an idol and worshiping the creature more than the creator. To use the language of Romans chapter 1, well, such idolaters were these Athenians. And Paul, it, it was all around Paul. As the text, as Acts 17 says, the city was wholly given over to idolatry. So that everywhere that Paul looked, there was an idol and there was an idol. All over the place. In fact, Paul even encountered one idol in verse 23 with the inscription to the unknown God. And that wasn't something that was commendable on the part of the Athenians as if they meant to say that we have a consciousness of the one true God and we're, we're trying our best to serve him. And in case we don't know him already, we'll, we'll try to cover all of our bases and have an idol to this unknown God that we're not fully aware of. No, Paul won't have any of that. 
when Paul looks at that altar and then he preaches his sermon, and when Paul says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Paul was not saying that they are worshiping the one true God, but now let me steer you in the right direction and steer you a little closer to him. That's not what's going on, but rather Paul uses this altar to demonstrate to them that yes, yes, there is a God that you do not know and your supposed worship of him is nothing but ignorance because you don't know him and you go a whoring after so many other gods and yet you are ignorant of and without knowledge of the one true and living God. And Paul says, him declare I unto you. Let me preach unto you who this true God is. And in the process of declaring the one true God to the Athenians, Paul makes clear that Jehovah God no longer winks at the ignorance of the Gentiles in the New Testament because now the gospel is going forth. And now that call and command to repent comes to all men everywhere. And the text goes on then to give the reason for this universal command to repent. And the reason is the universal public judgment of Jesus Christ over every man. That's what we have in verse 31. The command to repent to all men everywhere in this Verse 31, why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now I call your attention to so many different ways about how this verse shows that this is the reason why men ought to repent and to take this command seriously. In the first place, the judgment rendered by Jesus Christ at the end of time will be a universal judgment. Verse 31 speaks of Christ judging the world. And here the, the, the word translated world is, is not the cosmos, all of the created reality, but here it refers to the world of mankind. It refers to all human beings from the beginning to the end of the world. And the point is that wherever men are found on earth, those men will one day stand before Jesus Christ and be judged. And now this very clearly is a reason for the universal command to repent, because if every man is going to stand before Jesus Christ in judgment, then let every man know of it and know what his or her duty is. And that duty, the command to all men, is the command to repent. And there will be many in the final judgment day. and They will be without excuse. 
because not only do they know the existence of the one true God from creation itself, but they will also know that that God must be served. And insofar as that God must be served, they must turn from their wicked ways and repent. And then in the second place, verse 31 says that God will judge by that man whom he hath ordained. We know him. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah God has ordained the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to be the mediator of the covenant, but God has also ordained Jesus Christ to be his representative at the end of time and to sit on the judgment seat and to render that judgment at the very end of time. And so if therefore all men will stand before Jesus Christ, then let this universal command to repent be accompanied with the setting forth of the gospel that there is forgiveness of sins and salvation only in Jesus Christ, the man whom God has ordained. In the third place, verse 31 says that God through Jesus will judge in righteousness. That will be uh, the manner, as it were, of Jesus Christ judging at the very end of time, that Jesus Christ will judge in righteousness. And you remember the centurion who was standing there at the foot of the cross and who was overseeing all of the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. After Jesus Christ died and after Jesus Christ cried out, uh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus giving up the ghost, that centurion, he was a Gentile, mind you. But even as Gentile, he said, certainly, this was a righteous man. A righteous man. And that righteousness of Christ will be evident on the final day because that's how he will judge. He will judge in righteousness. He will not judge haphazardly. He will not judge randomly. He will not have a changing judgment and adjusting the, the, the levels of his standard. And Christ certainly will not judge wrongly. There will not be a travesty of justice in that day when Jesus Christ judges so that an innocent man will accidentally be condemned and an ungodly man will accidentally be declared innocent. There won't be any of that. And this becomes a reason for the universal call to repent because all men everywhere must know the standard according to which they will be judged on that day. And the standard is the righteousness of God himself. Perfect obedience to the will of God, a life that's in harmony with the law of God. What a high standard, and it is. 
And therefore, let no man trust in his own righteousness, but trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And then further, verse 31 speaks of the fact that this day of judgment has already been determined when Jesus Christ will come. Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. God has appointed that day. God knows when that day is. God has a, a, a calendar, as it were, an appointment book. And in that appointment book, he has fixed in ink that cannot be erased the exact moment of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I don't know that day. The angels of God in heaven, they don't even know that day, but God knows. And every day we do come closer and closer to that day. And we can even say that it's the next moment of any great significance on God's calendar. Because as it were, we are now in the last hour. We are in the final month. In the Old Testament, there were so many other important milestones and events that the prophets could point forward to and preach about, foretelling the days of the flood and foretelling and preaching about the day of the captivity and then of the return of the remnant. And you think of all of the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the coming of the Messiah, his incarnation, his birth, his suffering and death, and resurrection and ascension up into heaven. Well, because Christ is coming, let all men repent. This is a day that is fixed in God's calendar, and it will undoubtedly come. And because Christ is coming, let all men everywhere repent. Now let's remember in all of this that this isn't simply a word for the Gentiles out there in the world for them to hear that Jesus Christ is coming and let them repent. That's true. But this is a word for you and for me. We are included in these Gentiles. In our lines, we are Gentiles and we must hear the call of the gospel to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, we have, by God's grace, we have, we see the greatness of our sins and we repent. But now the call to repent isn't simply a one-time call, repent, but now that call becomes then and now continue to live that way that we continue to see the greatness of our sins that we would repent of those sins and seek salvation alone in Jesus Christ that we know that we are dependent upon him for everything in this world that we need him that he is our all he is our life and that we cling to him and not that we simply believe Jesus in a very vague way, but to believe what the scriptures tell us about him, that 
he is the Son of God, that he is perfect, that he is sinless, and that there is salvation only and exclusively through him and him alone. And so let us hear that call to believe on him and to repent of our sins because there will come the day when you and I also will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And woe be to us if we stand before that judgment seat without ever hearing the call to repent, which we have, but without ever having repented of our sins. But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 states that, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Our hope for the end And as we consider the judgment day, our hope and confidence is not that you and I will escape judgment. Our hope and confidence is not that perhaps we can sit on the sidelines watching everybody else get judged and that maybe with our binoculars we can look and way off in the distance the judgment will be happening but that we ourselves may be excused Every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let every man turn from his wicked way and trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our hope and confidence is that we will hear that declaration of innocence, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the righteousness and the innocence of Jesus Christ imputed to us. Well, the text goes on to point out the certainty of that coming judgment day. That day is absolutely certain, and we know that generally because in the first place there are there are so many signs of the times that are being fulfilled. God gives us the eyes of faith. We do well to look about in the world, to read Matthew chapter 24, to see that those signs are increasing in frequency, that they are increasing in intensity. The gospel being proclaimed to the nations, so much more now in the year 2023, And even 10, 20, 30 years ago, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, famines, the iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. We see that like never before. And all these signs are as the footsteps of Jesus Christ as he comes to conduct the final judgment. And those footsteps are getting louder and louder. They are increasing as the days go by. But this tells us that the day of judgment is certain. And it's drawing ever closer. In the second place, the text also says that God hath appointed the day when Jesus Christ will come. And that means that from all eternity, God made the decree 
on such and such a day, Jesus Christ will come on the clouds of glory. Our God who cannot lie, who speaks the truth, and that day of Jesus Christ has been decreed, and that day will come. But then this too from the text, the text pointing us to the certainty of Christ coming in judgment when the Acts 17 verse 31 states, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And the text states there that God has given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised them. And, and that word assurance here, it's not referring to any kind of grace or favor that God has upon all of the Gentiles to whom the call to repentance comes. But this word assurance simply means a, a, a demonstration. It means a proof of what one says is true. You think of a, of a salesman who's selling whatever it is, and that salesman may make many bold claims about his product, but the potential buyer, well, to assure another person that his claims are true, that salesman says, let me demonstrate it to you. Let me prove it to you. And let me make very clear to you that what I say is true. And then after proving it and after demonstrating it, the man says, and now I've given you assurance that my word is good. Well, beloved, in like manner, God has made a claim. And that claim is this. Jesus Christ is coming in judgment. And that day is certain. That is the claim that Jehovah God makes. And now God says, I will now give assurance to all men that what I say is true. I give a demonstration. I will give clear proof that what I say is absolutely sure. And now, what is that proof? What is that demonstration? The proof is this. Look inside the tomb. And it's empty. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because a dead man cannot come and conduct the final judgment. But God raised him from the dead and thereby giving proof to all men that they will one day stand before the judgment seat of this man, the risen and living Jesus Christ. And therefore the command is real, and the command is urgent, and the day is certain, and therefore repent of your sins and believe in him and trust in him for all your righteousness. And so, beloved, the resurrection of Christ then comforts us in, in many ways. Such a beautiful doctrine. The grave has been conquered. 
Death no longer holds sway over Jesus and over you and me who are in Jesus. And in Jesus Christ now, I am a new creature. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have everlasting hope and assurance for my body and soul to be present in everlasting glory. But then let's remember this too, that the resurrection is God's proof that this living Jesus Christ is coming to judge. And therefore, let us repent of our sins and believe in the risen Jesus Christ. And may we be faithful to this work of God, even as we would proclaim it far and wide on the mission field and other places as well. And let us look forward to that day when we will stand before Jesus Christ in all his resurrection glory. We need not be afraid of that day. We look forward to that day when we will stand and when we will hear his righteous verdict and to enter into our everlasting home that he has prepared for us. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let us pray. Father, which art in heaven, I thank thee for thy word to us. Apply it to our hearts and minds that we may lead that life of repentance, turning away from our sins and always cleaving and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee that Jesus is risen from the dead. Assurance that our sins are in fact covered and good hope for us, knowing that this same Jesus who has crucified, was crucified for us and risen from the dead will now be the same Jesus to come in the final judgment. And as he so loved me on the cross, so also will he love me in the final judgment and usher us into eternal glory. Forgive our sins and miseries. Bless us in the remainder of this Sabbath day that we would keep it holy to the glory of thy name. All this we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen.